Good evening, everyone. It's good to be gathered back together in person this week um, after a brief hiatus last week, last Tuesday. Um, before I read from Revelation, um, I'm going to say a bit about... Um, I'm just going to point to a few things that, that shouldn't be news to you, but that might um, help perk your ears in certain ways whenever you hear this reading here in just a second. So as I imagine most of you are more or less acutely aware, um, there's a rather historic election um, that's taking place today. Um, maybe the most historic um, election uh, in the history of our country and certainly within any of our lifetimes. Um, and I'll tell you that four years ago, the Wednesday morning after the last presidential election was um, a serious time, and I think for everyone, but it was um, a moment where some things started to take shape um, in our ministry and where God started to move us into the fray of things that this ministry had never been into before. Um, and I'll just say explicitly to you uh, that to me, when I woke up on the Wednesday morning following Tuesday four years ago, and it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be the president of the United States of America, the significance to me of that fact then, as well as now, had chiefly to do with the church in America. Um, it had chiefly to do, it, what I, the way I was interpreting it was not what does this mean for the fate of the United States of America, but what does this reveal about the Christians who live in this country. The significance of Donald Trump's presidency has always been, to me, chiefly about the church and American Christians. And the, that significance is this, um, that the election of Donald Trump has been the worst and the most consequential proof, the worst and most consequential proof of what I already knew to be true which is to say that it didn't inform me of something I didn't already know. It just marked the beginning of a span of time in which I had to live with, and, and I think anyone that is honest has had to live with, a painful proof of what already was true, which is this, that American Christians are overwhelmingly heretical and self-deceived idolaters. That's the significance of Donald Trump's presidency to me. And I would argue objectively. That's the significance of Donald Trump's presidency. That American Christians are overwhelmingly heretical and self-deceived idolaters. So regardless of what you think of that claim, knowing that about me, it might not surprise you to find out that this last summer, whenever... I was asked by my superiors in the United Methodist Conference to take on a sort of preaching side hustle at a local church um, on Sundays. In addition to the Wesley Foundation, I was, I was going to pastor this, this little country church not far from here, a church that had actually been very kind and welcoming to my family and I whenever we first moved back to Louisiana uh, those years ago, um, a church that threw us a baby shower whenever Margo was born, um, or maybe right before she was born, I can't remember. Um, that when I accepted that appointment and started preaching at that church and found myself presented with gospel passages week after week um, that summer, this is this last summer, that begged in very obvious ways to be preached with reference to the division 
and vitriol and ongoing unfolding of idolatry and people's political allegiances in the United States of America, it shouldn't surprise you to find out that that's exactly what I did. And that even though uh, I didn't, I mean, I, some days I did say Donald Trump's name, but I, I was not bashful, whether I said his name or not, about inviting the people in that congregation who by showing up every Sunday allege that they want to follow Jesus, I was not hesitant to invite them to repent of the idolatry that is performed by the betrayal of their mission in the support of that man. Um, I, I, I preached that from the pulpit. Um, I did so without anger and in love. And always what I was doing is preaching the word of God, all right? So after only two months of doing that, um, there was a no-holds-barred effort at that church to, to get rid of me as the pastor. Um, there was sort of taking the, taking the church hostage um, by what, what I think was not the entirety of the church, but maybe a majority of the church, um, and there was a strong effort to, to get rid of me as the preacher. Actually, what I was presented with was this kind of ultimatum of like, either you let us sing songs to the American flag in worship, and you never say anything about Donald Trump again, or you have to go. And if you don't go, we will just stop giving money until the church dies. Um, so they presented me with this ultimatum. I listened to their concerns calmly. Um, I, I asked them questions in response. And the conversation, which was not nearly as long as it would have needed to be if everyone in that room was committed to live in peace with one another. Um, but nonetheless, the conversation meandered invariably, as I've seen it does, to the subject of voting. The conversation came around specifically to the subject of voting. And in fact, it's because in the over 10 years that I've been doing vocational ministry, it's because of the periodic occurrence of conversations like the one that I had with that little cadre of very angry Trump-supporting churchgoers at that church. It's because that's not the first kind of conversation I've had like that with people in churches. It's because that keeps happening, and not just about Trump, but other stuff, that I, I stopped voting a lot of years ago. Um, after the 2008 election, I, I, I resolved, by the end of 2009, I think I had decided I, I will not ever vote again, as long as I'm a preacher of the gospel. And so the subject, I'm in this room with these people who are, I mean, they're spitting venom mad. And the conversation meanders around to the subject of voting and to the fact that I don't vote. And when I told these three people that I don't vote, one of the men in the room replied, well, then you don't even have a right to say anything in the first place about any of this if you don't vote. And I replied, I believe that it's the blood of Christ and his resurrection from the dead, that, that gives me the right to say something, actually. And so regardless of the United States of America or whatever my so-called rights are and exercising them in my civil liberties or whatever, I think it's Jesus, in fact, that gives me a right to say something. And even a really angry guy in, in a church meeting who is doing otherwise ridiculous things doesn't really have anything to say to that, right? Like, you're not going to be like, 
No, Jesus, straightforwardly, you're not going to be like, no, Jesus' blood doesn't give you the right to say anything. And so he was kind of dumbfounded initially and was like, uh, yeah, I guess, okay, but we still need all that other stuff, too. And I was like, what other stuff are you talking about? And he was like, I mean, like, the government and uh, elected officials and the police and the military and patriotism. Um, so I'm not going to completely parse out everything that's significant about that exchange for you, but I do want to point out a few things to you. Firstly, who is the we he's talking about when he says, yeah, but we still need all that other stuff too? And depending upon how you answer that question, do we really need all of that other stuff? Um, secondly, note the way that my interlocutor although he probably doesn't know what that word means, assumed that the activity of voting, and he assumed rightly that the activity of voting, has bodily and relational implications far beyond what happens in the voting booth. And he's right about that. He's exactly right about that. That the activity of voting has bodily and relational implications that go far beyond what happens in the voting booth. So even though he's wrong that I don't get to say anything because I don't vote, he's right that what we do in the secrecy of the voting booth has profound impact outside of it. Somewhat irrespective of the outcome of the election even, this man assumes that voting gives one grounds to speak, to make claims, and to put other people's choices and actions and convictions to the question. Which, by the way, is exactly, I mean, that's exactly why I quit voting, is so that I can put people's actions and convictions and choices to the question. Okay? And if you want to understand more about that, I may or may not explain more later, but you can ask me about it later. But... For, the per for right now, the main thing I want you to note is that in all of that, I want you to recognize the way that we think of voting in America chiefly as a speech act, as an act of speech. When people vote, what they are doing is they're gaining the right to say something. They're exercising their voice. They're letting their voice be heard. Most of the ways we talk about voting have to do with speech, or they look at it as an activity of speech. Tonight when we, when we read Revelation 8, we do so in the midst of what is in fact an apocalyptic moment for our country. And in this moment, what I want us to be listening for are forms of speech that the Lord gives to the church in the midst of this and any other apocalyptic moment, that though the world might deny that they matter, that they are in fact profoundly consequential and potent, even more consequential and potent than the very real consequences of votes.
Tonight, let's listen to what revelation sounds like. What kinds of things it might empower us to hear and say and not to say, and what difference that might make for living as we do at a time near the end of America. So with all of that as a prelude, this is a reading from John's Revelation. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were, give, trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So that a third of their light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. Then I looked... And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. So in this reading, the Lamb opens the seventh and the final seal of the book that he received from the hand of the Father on the throne way back in chapter 5. And so this is the final movement in the narrative thread that began there three chapters ago. Uh, the chapter begins in silence, a silence that is broken by peals of thunder and all these other kind of uh, cosmic sort of shaking sounds, and then it ends with the eagle's cries of woe, all right? So these are three sort of auditory moments, or movements, you could say, throughout uh, the chapter. Silence broken by, the silence is broken, and then uh, there's this, we might call it like almost like a, a cacophony, or you can think of it as a succession of trumpet blasts, and it ends in cries of woe. And what I want us to do is to contemplate the silence and the sound and the prayer and the grief that is wrapped up in those silences and sounds, the judgment and even the possibility of joy that's interwoven in everything that we hear in this chapter. I'm going to focus almost entirely 
on the first five verses and on the very last verse of this chapter, and I'm barely going to touch at all the details of the trumpets themselves that come between. Um, and so with that in mind, there's going to be basically three movements to what I, or three sort of sections to this talk. Um, silence, fire, and woe. All right, and then we'll move basically um, in order of, of the verses that we're going to cover here. So in this first section, again, with the breaking of the sixth seal, this is the sixth seal, way back in chapter six, um, God's judgment and the wrath of the Lamb began in earnest, all right, with the breaking of the sixth seal. And so when finally in chapter eight, we come to the breaking of the seventh seal, the beginning of God's judgment and wrath is the last thing that happened with the breaking of a seal. We had this interval between there. But we have good reason to assume or to suspect that the momentum of judgment and wrath will continue here. And yet, what happens whenever the seal is broken at first seems to be nothing. Nothing. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. It's a silence that lasts long enough to find oneself lost in it. A silence in which one might become uncertain whether anything else is going to happen at all. A silence in which that momentum is suddenly arrested and one finds oneself in the thrall of a stillness. And then in verse 2, we see seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets are given to them. So, with verse 1 bringing us into the thrall of a silence, and verse 2 immediately marshalling before us seven angelic trumpet players, um, sound is like the obvious theme of, the, of this section of Revelation. So, broadly speaking, in these first two verses, we know already that the sensible experience of this chapter is going to be mostly auditory in its register. The silence in the trumpets, we might ask, you know, what do we make of the, of the contrast that exists in these two things? Or is there some kind of a relationship instead of just a juxtaposition between the noise of a blaring trumpet and this lengthy silence in verse 1? It's tempting to interpret verse 2 as following in succession upon that 30 minutes of silence in verse 1. But there's actually no verbal signal in the, here to make us think that it's, that it's like first came the silence, then came the trumpet bearers. Does that make sense? Instead, it's perfectly reasonable, in fact, probably more reasonable to interpret the marshalling of the trumpet players as happening in the midst of that silence. Either way, whether we think of the trumpets as concurrent or as following in succession in their appearance on the silence, it's clear that they punctuate each other. The presence of the trumpets intensify the mounting gravity and the sense of anticipation that began to swell immediately when the silence began. And yet we should not be too quick to think of the silence as merely a prelude to the dreadful sounds that will characterize everything that's going to follow the silence. The silence is not just dead space before something happens. Rather, the silence is its own happening. 
Moreover, the silence is the root out of which will grow all that is going to happen when the trumpets do begin to sound. But if this silence is not a mere absence or emptiness, just what is it? What's going on in the midst of this silence? I think, in short, it is a multifaceted silence. It has more facets than I will touch tonight. But one facet of it, I believe, is hinted at in verses 3 and 4. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saint rose before God from the hand of the angel. So the prayers of the saints in censers, which if you didn't grow up in a church that that uses them, or if you just haven't ever seen one before, um, that is like a, a vessel used in worship um, that contains incense, burning incense. And like, uh, for example, like in a Catholic or Episcopal or Orthodox church, um, you might see someone walking around doing this number with one, right? And spreading, you know what I'm talking about? And spreading incense around. Uh, they're actually pretty, pretty legit. I wish we used one. Anyway, um, so that's what a censer is. And we first saw them containing the prayers of the saints um, in chapter 5. At the moment that the Lamb first, first took the book with all these seals on it from the hand of the Father. So there in chapter 5 we read, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden censer full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here's what this means. The beginning of the, of the breaking of the seals of the book, like the beginning of the saga of the book, Like, as Jesus is taking it, at the very beginning, we have censers filled with the prayers of the saints. And then, at the end, we have the same thing. So this book and the breaking of its seals is hemmed in behind and before with the prayers of the saints. It's bookended with these censers full of saintly prayer. Not to mention that a a little bit past halfway through the breaking of the seals and the breaking of the fifth seal... The question of the prayers of the saints is sort of alluded to, or it's raised in a kind of implicit way, whenever we hear the voices of the slain Christians under the altar, crying out with a loud voice to God, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? And so we get the prayers of the saints at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of this narrative strand in which the breaking of the seals of the book Unfolds. So what do we make of this motif of the prayers of the saints? And, it's, and what, what is the relationship of the prayers of the saints to everything that's happening in the breaking of these seals? In the broadest sense, what this motif entails is an affirmation over and over again that the Lord hears the prayers of the saints, um, which is something that the saints need to know living in a world where the seals are being broken. It is even an affirmation that that the nature of what happens in the breaking of the seals is happening in concert with and even responsively to the prayers that are in those censers. So to say that more directly, 
What we're to make of the breaking of the seals is at least partly, in its relationship to the prayers, is, is at least partly that the breaking of the seals are answers to the saints' prayers, right? That these things are not only sort of uh, coming out of God's will in a way that God's will is kind of hermetically sealed from the voice and petitions of Christians, but that what's happening in the breaking of the seals has in some way been influenced and even shaped by, maybe, what is arising to the Lord in those censers that have the saints' prayers. But what are we to make of the relation between, or what are we, what are we to make of, of, or is there a relationship to be drawn between silence, the silence, and these prayers in the censer? When we think of these prayers offered to God in the golden censer, along with that great quantity of incense, and I think, for that matter, when we think of prayer in general, whether it's here in these verses in chapter 8 of Revelation, or just when we're thinking about prayer, period, Usually, what we think about is words. Saying stuff to God. That's what we think about when we hear the word prayer, I think, for the most part. We think about asking God to do stuff. And to be clear, that's not wrong. I mean, saying stuff to God is prayer, and a great deal of prayer is rightly and properly asking God for things. It's petitions. And to be sure, that, is, that cannot be excluded from what's going on with these censors, all right? Words of some kind. And yet, to think of the prayers of the saints merely as words and petitions is to have a drastically oversimplified understanding of what prayer is. Not just because there are many forms of prayer, but because the Lord himself not any benefit from the Lord, but the Lord himself is the object of prayer. The Lord himself is what we are ultimately seeking in the act of prayer. Smoke with the incense, with the prayers of all the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Let it be said that the Christians in Revelation are utterly preoccupied with God. The destination of where these prayers are going is some, is a de- that's, we, get, we get details about the destination of the prayers, right? We don't get details here about the content of those prayers. So let it be said that the Christians in Revelation are utterly preoccupied with God. We can imagine that their prayers include petitions that are, respons- that, that are responsive to situations of carnage and injustice on the ground, and that they offer those petitions and requests to God. We know, excuse me, what they, uh, what they know to do when they find themselves faced with agonies or needs is to bring those things to the Lord. Yet even more deeply and of greater importance than what the content of their petitions is, is simply that they continually find themselves in the presence of the Lord. That's what this smoke and incense signifies most deeply. Not information or content to be communicated, but simply a vivid withness between the saints and God. 
It signifies an ongoing presence with the Lord. Moreover, consider that whereas in chapter 5, we heard the actual words of the saints under the altar, here the prayers of the saints are not described as articulate, nor are they even audible. John doesn't hear them. He sees them being offered alongside and as incense and smoke. They're presented to God in a censer, a vessel of smell, uh, of pleasing aroma. The prayers of the saints here are as smoke. They're fragrant, registered in a visual and in an olfactory way. And if they have meaning or content, that meaning and content isn't John's to perceive because it's offered to the Lord. God is their sole recipient. The chapter began with an abrupt onset of a long period of silence, and that silence hasn't been broken yet. Whenever the golden censer is brought to the altar, it won't be broken until the latter half of verse 5. It's in the interval of silence that the prayers are brought to the altar. Why then need we assume that this prayer that God is receiving is only words? or articulate prayer, or prayers of petition. Why not recognize that this censor must include silent prayer? Why not recognize that the gift of that censor, and in the Lord's willingness to receive that gift, there is an intimate communion between God and the saints that goes beyond words, and that is even free to dispense with words. Moving on from silence to fire. In the first half of verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Um, I think at a surface level, it's hard not to understand this as the sort of onset of the judgment that we expected when we came to the opening of the seventh seal. The hurling of fire upon the earth, right? And it's worth noting that this is the same censer with which the prayer of the saints was offered. And though it's not systematically explained here, the how, the actions of this angel around the altar, um, in the actions of this angel around the altar, the prayers of the saints, it becomes clear, are in some way mingled with the horrible judgment that will be unleashed upon the earth. There is some effect, um, and that effect includes judgment. Uh, and the, the, the prayers of the saints is in some way involved in that. And it's not parsed out exactly how that is, but that seems to be straightforwardly the case. In the second half of verse, verse 5, And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So, firstly, this verse and really all of chapter 8, and, and really the whole saga of the trumpets that follows chapter 8, um, are straightforwardly elusive to the book of Exodus. So they're elusive to the book of Exodus in the sense that uh, there are seven plagues that are unleashed upon Egypt, and there are seven woes, we might call them, that are unleashed through the blowing of these trumpets. 
But here, uh, there's a lot of layers of, um, of language that are drawn, especially in, uh, from Exodus chapter 19, which, of course, we read a portion of uh, earlier this evening. In Exodus chapter 19, Israel has come to Mount Sinai. They're about to receive the law from the Lord, and uh, they find themselves brought into the frightful presence of the living God. And, and there's careful boundaries drawn upon them around the mountain, and only Moses goes up into the, the sort of firsthand presence of the Lord. But everyone in the people of God hears these horrible um, sounds of thunder and lightning and these sort of earth-shaking um, sounds, um, and the blowing of trumpets as well. And, and so all of, all of what's going on in Revelation chapter 8 is partially, at least, alluding to Exodus chapter 19. These are the kinds of sounds, peals of thunder, rumbling, slashes of lightning, and an earthquake that the people who gathered around Mount, Mount Sinai heard as the word of God was uttered to God's people. And that thunder in Exodus 19, it is God speaking. That's God talking to them, which is interesting in, in all kinds of ways. I mean, for one, because it's frightful and formidable, and the people eventually get to the point where they're like, please no more, actually. It's also, in some way, it goes beyond the articulate comprehension of the people who are listening, and yet it is recognizable as speech, nonetheless, for them to be able to name it as the word of God and hear it as God speaking to them. So into the silence of Revelation 8, as we come to the latter half of verse 5, there erupts the awesome voice of God. That is what was waited upon in the silence that began the chapter. So uh, a, a couple of things about um, these, uh, these peals of thunder, etc. Um, we get this exact same formula, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We get that here, and then at the beginning of the, uh, of the seven trumpets, and then at the very end, after the last trumpet has sounded, and we've gotten an explanation of what's going on in the sounding of the last trumpet, which is in the latter half of chapter 11, then we get that exact same formula again at the very end of chapter 11. Um, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and and earthquake. Um, so these sounds punctuate, they bookend um, the blowing of the trumpets. They mark the beginning and the end. Uh, something similar happens. One other, there's one other place where we hear that exact same formula in Revelation. It's in chapter 16, which is like an abridged version of what happens between chapters 8 and 11. All right, so I told you that like Revelation repeats itself a bunch, and lots of times it's like, and we're going to tell the same thing again now. And so that happens in chapter 16, and again, at the end of that account in chapter 16, we get that same formula, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Um, and so I think we, I guess one thing I want us to hear in that thunder is the question of what exactly is the arc or purpose or trajectory as we stand at the beginning of the trumpet sounding, um, can we, in that thunder, hear something of the purpose or the arc of the judgment that is going to unfold in the blowing of these seven trumpets, given that we hear that sound at the beginning and we hear it 
at the end. So the latter half of chapter 11, as I mentioned just a second ago, um, it describes the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And rather than when, when the seventh trumpet blows, there's not like yet another form of judgment that unfolds, but instead what we get after the blowing of the seventh trumpet is an interpretation by the heavenly host of the significance of, of all of the trumpets together, of just what has been happening in all of that. And what the heavenly host interpret to be the significance of the blowing of the trumpets is this, um, that in the judgment that unfolds, that what's happening is the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. Um, so the end of chapter 11 is where we get some of the most famous parts of Handel's Messiah, the words uh, for one of the familiar songs that you might know from, from that. Um, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, the kingdom of the, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. So with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the heavenly host interprets and celebrates God's wrath and judgment. And they interpret it as an arrival of his reign on earth. And all the destruction that has been unleashed in the intervening trumpet blast between verse 5 in chapter 8 and the latter half of chapter 11, the heavenly host describes all of that as, quote, God destroying those who destroy the earth. And so we might, even now, before we've heard the first trumpet blast, as we listen to these rumblings and peals of thunder, we might recognize now that everything that is to come in the trumpets is not just punishment or the unfurling of God's anger on the world, but that it is, in fact, redemptive. It is, in fact, a healing act. That it is God cutting out a voracious cancer and destroying it. And it looks destructive, but actually it's ordered toward the healing of all that God has made. But let's go back to that fire. Because before we hear the rumblings and peals of thunder, the thing that happens just before that is that censor that had the prayers scooping up fire from the altar and pouring out that fire upon the earth. What's going on with that fire? besides just a vague sense of God's judgment. A lot of early Christian, I'm not just saying a lot, a lot's going on. Uh, sorry for the weird cadences in my preaching. Uh, but a lot of early Christian commentators, like, like folks back in the day reading the Bible, when they read about this fire, like a bunch of them, they were like, oh yeah, that's the preaching of the church. That's the church's preaching. Right. I was kind of like, huh, okay, I, I'm game, but I don't, I don't know if I get it at first. But as I read on and, and listened to this, these commentaries, I was like, no, okay, actually they've got, like, I can see why this maybe ought to have been obvious to me, even though initially it's not obvious to me to interpret it that way. So consider that passage in Exodus, for example, first of all. The presence of God manifests as fire descending upon the mountain, all right? And then follows right, These thun this, this thunderous sound that is the word of God. And that descending of fire upon the mountain in Exodus is what would have come to mind for the Christians in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon all the members of the church as flames of fire upon them. 
And then what came through the gift of the Spirit, what, what that fire ignited in them was preaching. All of the church was filled with the Spirit, and they started speaking in other languages. And what the bystanders in Acts chapter 2 hear, coming from the mouths of those Christians, is the church proclaiming to them God's mighty deeds of power. The gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift of the Lord Himself. I mean, it is God descending on Sinai. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is. And what we see that gift result in in the New Testament is not unlike what it results in on Mount Sinai. It's that the Word of God begins to rumble forth in the world and it literally shakes the earth. The gift of the Holy Spirit results in preaching so powerful in the book of Acts that none of the church's enemies are able to withstand or resist it. Preaching so powerful that it still has an uncontainable impact even when people silence the people who are preaching by stoning them to death. Out of that silence somehow grows the word of God kept on spreading. Likewise, John the Baptist says of Jesus that he's coming to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. And what is the fire that Jesus brings but his preaching? Whatever else he is as Messiah, his preaching, uh, he is a preacher first and foremost. Little wonder then that for centuries Christians have looked at that fire that the angel scoops off the altar and pours out upon the earth and said, that's the assurance that the word of the gospel, the preaching of the church, will continue undaunted even as the world crashes down as these trumpets sound. And that this is a vision of just how powerful that preaching is. Which again is something the church needs to know as those trumpets begin to sound. That for centuries Christians have understood that as the fire of the Spirit goes forth, so too rolls forth peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. And that that preaching, that that is the preaching of the church. Because in the preaching of the church, there's nothing more and nothing less made present in the world than the very utterance and speech of God. I mean, that's scandalous, but true. What we've been entrusted as the messengers of the gospel is the very utterance of the living God. So that's fire. Moving on now to, to woe. And here, I'm basically jumping all the way ahead as I told you I would, to verse 13. So by the time we get to verse 13, four of the seven trumpets have already sounded. And like I said, I'm not going to say virtually anything about them except this, that, the, that what they amount to, these first four trumpets, they amount to the onset of a, pre a precipitous decline of creation itself and especially of the earth. Um, there's this peculiar language of a third of things being struck. And... Um, I think no one really knows what the crap's going on with that. I'm just going to be honest with you. Even people that otherwise are like, this is definitely what this means. Um, but I think one thing that's pretty clear that we can infer from it is that like, if a third of the light or of the, the drinking water of the earth, for example, is struck, um, that doesn't mean that just a third of everything that depends upon that is going to be affected, right? 
Instead, what that means is like a cascade of, of, of ecological catastrophe, essentially, right? Um, so this is the beginning, not just a, a cleanly defined third, but the beginning of a precipitous decline of everything that supports life, human and otherwise, on earth. And then we come to verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this word woe is a, a very scripturally rich one. Um, and I'll just name, I'll sort of list for you some of the different registers with which this word resonates in the Bible. So maybe in the most obvious sense, it's a portentous word, right? Um, we feel, uh, even if we weren't in the context of what's going on in this chapter, but certainly in that context, we feel that that woe, I mean, and it's even spelled out for us here, right? Like some, even worse stuff's about to happen, right? More stuff is coming. So it's portentous. At the same time, it's also something that is said in, in other places in Scripture, when the pain and agony and judgment of God has already begun to be experienced. And so in this sense, um, it's always a term of grief, actually, this woe. Um, you shouldn't read woe as like, I mean, so there are, parts, there are parts of the New Testament where Jesus pronounces woes, like especially in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. And it's like, like we started to read one of those passages tonight, and I just decided the Exodus one was whatever. But uh, go read it tonight, and if you want. It's in Matthew. Um, I mean, it's like, it sounds like Jesus is just like mowing down um, his, his opponents, if that makes sense. Like he is just rhetorically beating them to the ground. But it's not, and, and as forcible as it is, it's nonetheless always deeply fraught with grief, all right? Um, whether it be the grief of the people who find themselves in the thrall of God's judgment and, and recognize it as such and give expression to the pain of that, or whether it be the person who is saying, this stuff is about to happen to you. It often has the flavor of indictment, um, and a, a pronouncement of, um, of like a verdict of guilt upon the person upon whom it's being pronounced, all right? So woe to you often means um, I indict you or I convict you of X, Y, and Z crimes. So frequently, as I said uh, in the Gospels, it can appear also as this kind of minority report. By that, what I mean is... Um, it is spoken seemingly against all odds, against people more powerful than the person who's pronouncing the woe. And sometimes it's spoken in a way that seems to fly in the face of what, what it looks like is actually going on. So Jesus pronounces woes of indictment and judgment and guilt upon people who are supposed to be the pillars of righteousness and holiness in the community, right? The stewards of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it seems like this kind of minority report where it's like, no one else thinks that about these people, Jesus. And yet he's like, woe to you because you look like you have it together, but actually you're dead. You're whitewashed tombs. 
In this latter way, the word woe is a deeply prophetic term. It discloses truth about things that are hidden or that others are not willing to say out loud. And in so doing, it pronounces an end or a rupture that is otherwise unimaginable. Right? If woe is being pronounced against people who seem to be established and comfortable in their power, and an indictment is brought to bear against them that could not otherwise be imagined, then the end as well of everything that, seems, that they seem to support and the structure that supports them, the end of that becomes imaginable as well. As I've already said, the term articulates grief, as in the grieving of the prophets in the Old Testament. It is also an articulation of grief in the sense that it gives voice to the plight of those who suffer because of God's judgment, whether it is their own sin or someone else's that's being judged. Right? It gives voice to the suffering of people who find themselves impacted by sin, whether it is their sin or someone else's. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is saying a bunch of rather apocalyptic stuff. And he says in verse 19, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Um, not because right, they got pregnant and they're nursing infants, um, but because uh, it's going to be hard to have uh, a dependent life in the, in the midst of the world crashing down around you. And in that sense, and finally, it is a word laden with the Lord's compassion um, for the innocent as well as for the guilty. It ultimately calls the Lord's own grief and agony at the brokenness and hurt of all people. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus has that long list of woes, he then stretches his hands out to Jerusalem and articulates how deeply he wishes that they would turn to him. So to move toward saying a bit about what all of this might mean for us, uh, reading these words in 2020. Um, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, and then I'm going to go back through silence, fire, and woe, and, and try to talk about those things in a slightly more personal way. Um, so yesterday, Elias came home from school. My son, Elias, came home from school. He's in first grade. He's eight years old. And he explained to me, he, he told me a story that I still don't quite understand all the details of. Um, but here's the gist. At some point in the day, his teacher asked this room of first graders who they were voting for, which I don't, I'm like, they're not voting for anyone. Uh, well, I guess maybe it was like, who do you want to vote for? And uh, I mean, unanimously, uh, minus Elias, um, who doesn't even know who is running the election besides Donald Trump, was like, everybody was like, Donald Trump. And, um, and then somehow this erupted into the, the whole classroom, again, minus Elias, uh, sort of Lord of the Flies style chanting, uh, vote for Donald Trump, vote for Donald Trump. So just, I just want you to hear that for a second, uh, a room full of seven and eight year olds um, just chanting those words, all right? And I'm listening to Elias say this, and he was like, and he was quiet for a second, and then he was like, I think he's probably going to win. 
Um, I think Donald Trump is probably going to win. And uh, this is a really upsetting story to hear as a father. Um, not because uh, I'm afraid of Elias being influenced by that. That's not really something I'm necessarily afraid of. Not that he, he couldn't be influenced. But um, he had no trouble, at least at this stage in his life, differentiating himself from that behavior and recognizing that that was something to be troubled about rather than something to get himself caught up into. I'm not worried about him being influenced. We've explained to he and we've begun to explain to Margot that following Jesus is going to make him feel strange, even among people who are Christians a lot of the time. Um, but one difference that it, that it made, and this is not necessarily something I'm worried about, but it's something that I bring up for our reflection tonight. One difference it did make for Elias is that it made him troubled by the knowledge that I am not voting. And it raised a question that has sort of come up before, but now became you know, explicit, which was simply, um, basically, like, why don't you do something about this, Dad? Why don't you vote? Why don't you be one voice over against those other voices? Another thing to recognize in that is how deeply significant, how we learn how deeply significant a vote is. How in some ways it is difficult not to be in awe of the power of voting. It is not just Trump that's being venerated in that scary moment in that classroom, but it's, it's the vote itself. And it's, I think, impossible for Elias not to come away from that being kind of awed by the power of voting as a speech act. Um, I just want to say here that, um, by the way, the point of all this is not to try to tell you not to vote, or even to sort of go after voting, all right? And I also want to say that it is natural and, in fact, thoroughly sane to want to be delivered out of the current presidency and to desire to do anything you can to help that happen, to be delivered out of the clot of absurdity and hazards and anxieties and incoherence, not to mention the harm to neighbors and to some of us in this room that has come from this man being in office over the course of the last four years. But again, what I really want to draw attention to is how powerful a vote seems to us and the way that we describe that under the metaphor of speech and how that power seems compounded by what we say about voting. On election day in 2020, a year that has been an apocalypse, a vision of the end of America as we know it, how can we hear the silence and behold the fire and listen to the cries of woe? How can we hear all of that and see it 
with anything but outrage or dismissal or with a sense that God is not giving us enough to do something about the world where we find ourselves? How can we not be caught up into the thrall of the rhetoric, not just of political parties, but the rhetoric that surrounds the story of democracy? We hear everywhere we turn um, injunctions, or uh, we, hear, we hear ourselves like, told to vote from everywhere from uh, church probably to Amazon.com, right? Like everyone wants you to do it. And what we're doing, we tell each other when we vote, is we're exercising our voice, we're saying something, we're making something happen, we're taking hold of the wheels of democracy and history, we're fulfilling our civic duty. Whatever you don't do, we're told, don't be silent, which means don't not vote. One of my very best friends, who knows me well and shares essentially all of my convictions, I had a phone call with him yesterday, and he will listen to this, so I'm not saying this behind his back. And he was like, yeah, I just don't understand why you vote. I mean, the only thing I can come up with is just laziness. And I was like, are you joking? Are you, I mean, I'm capable of laziness, but is that really what you think? Like, laziness? Whatever you do, don't be silent. In Revelation 8, on the brink of cosmic changes, worldwide catastrophes, global crisis, the only apparent role or activities that we find given to the Christians are things like silent prayer, preaching, and having our ears attuned to the cries of woe. Rather than seizing hold of the levers of power, joining in the fight for justice or injustice, we see that in the biblical apocalypse, the Christians aren't taking control of anything. Rather, they are seeking the presence of God. They're entrusting themselves, their attention, their needs, their hopes, and their fears to God. And their prayer is gathered to God, not even by their own hands. It's brought, it's born to God by angels. To be sure, when the Lord has received these prayers, something happens. It has an effect in the world. Many things happen. But it's not the choice or the agency or the will of the saints that causes it to happen in any direct way. Their prayer is as a fragrant smoke for the Lord, mingled with the fire of his wrath. But the outcomes are his, not theirs. Revelation 8 invites us to cherish and to celebrate these peculiarly powerful speech acts that God gives the church, unimportant and insignificant as they may seem. So let's think about them again. Silence. For Christians, the final course of all things and our role in the course of all things grows out of silence. And what I am talking about broadly here is prayer of all kinds. So later last night, after in the car ride, on the car ride home, I just was like, wow, I'm sorry that that happened. 
um, no matter what happens, no matter who's elected, we're going to follow Jesus. Later that night, after we prayed, and as I was putting my kids in bed, um, we prayed, I prayed with the kids. Um, and this is one of those things where I'm like, y'all say what I say. Da-da-da-da, and then I repeat what I say, right? So this is what we, one of the things we prayed was that God would lead the millions, I suppose there are millions of Christians who vote who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and who are going to vote for him today, that he would lead them to repentance. We ask God to bring an end to the Trump presidency. Um, And we recognize in our prayer that um, no matter what happens today, that one day Donald Trump will find himself having to answer to the living God, as will all of those who did not repent of their participation and the violences that he's unleashing on this world. So we prayed. And that is in some ways the answer to Elias' question, Dad, why don't you do something about this? That's what I'm doing about it. I'm praying. Why should that seem so much less consequential to us than a vote? It is, of course, the case, just to be clear, that you don't have to choose between either praying or voting. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, why doesn't prayer count as doing something about it to us? Especially when the prayers of the saints are mingled with fire and judgment and world-changing outcomes in the Scripture. So I am talking about prayer in all of its senses when I talk about silence. But I also want to go on to say that the perfection of prayer is silence. The perfection of prayer is silence. This is firstly because silence is the posture that rightly values the word of God, what God has to say, over what we have to say. Silence is a posture of awe at God's speech. It is the posture that welcomes God's words. The perfection of prayer is silence. Just as human courtship and marriage, in human courtship and marriage there is much talk, but the perfection of romance is lovemaking, which is often not an action full of speech. So too, is the perfection of prayer silence. In prayer, there is room for talk, but prayer's perfection is the absence of talk. In silence, we entrust not just our needs and our petitions to God. We don't just ask for help to repent and and for forgiveness of sins. In silence, we entrust our very selves to God. For in silence, we don't just renounce words, But silence is the renunciation of our own agency. It is the surrender to the will and the care of God. In silence, we confess finally that our efforts and plans, however admirable and even scriptural, are not enough and can never be enough to keep us on the narrow way. It will have to be God who keeps us. And in silence, we trust that he will. Fire. Um, I have 
less fully worked out thoughts here. I think very broadly what I want to invite us to with reference to fire is to cherish and recognize the importance and to guard the power of preaching. And I mean the preaching of people who are preachers, and I mean the preaching that every one of us is called to as witnesses of the gospel. Um, There's a pastor you may have heard of named John Piper, who is a guy that um, I'm as likely to make fun of, uh, usually, as as anything. Um, But really, at the end of the day, as much as I like to make fun of him, and he does dumb stuff sometimes, John Piper really loves the Bible, and in that sense, I've I've always known that John Piper is actually an ally of mine. And um, he recently wrote an article, which is not as ballsy as what I would have liked, but compared to most other high-profile pastors who are saying nothing, especially nothing negative, about the candidates of this upcoming election, um, I was impressed by. And to me, probably the most important part of this article, which, by the way, is called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. Um, sidebar. Um, when people talk about cancel culture, they're always like, uh, it's a thing that the liberals do, right? Um, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? When people like complain about cancel culture, it's always like the liberals that are doing the cancel culture. Um, I just want to say John Piper uh, got canceled by a bunch of conservative people after this. Um, so it's not just the libs um, that do it. Anyway, so uh, he's like usually one of their champions, you know, but after this, not, not so much. Um, so he, without ever even saying Trump's name, he's, he's pre- he just like lays out lots of reasons why it's like, it, it's biblically incoherent to, to think it's okay for you to vote for this man, and it doesn't, like you saying that you're doing it because of abortion just doesn't justify it. Like I'm all about not supporting abortion, but you just can't. And, and have the Bible that we do, sorry, right? Um, and I mean, it's a pretty watertight argument. Um, but my favorite part is where he, he addresses preachers directly. And um, he says a lot of things to them, but, but to me the most poignant part is this. He says, may I suggest to pastors that, the, that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. I, when I read that, I was like, yes! Piper's on my side. Like, I'm going to the Wesleyan telling everybody America's coming to an end, and I feel like a crazy person. But even John Piper, who is in many ways the most, you know, buttoned-down, like, preppy, mainstream Christians, really like him, he thinks so too. Just saying. Anyway, um, imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, by which he means people who can praise God while they're waiting to be executed. And broadly speaking, I just need everyone in this room to recognize that if, if that's the kind of preaching we're going to have, which that's the kind of preaching we need, no matter when it is in America, no matter who's president, no matter what country it is, if we're really preaching the word of God, it is preparing us for a situation in which there's nothing but God supporting our life together. We need to cherish preaching and guard it in that way. 
And preachers in the quiet of their study have a responsibility to do that. But I just want to tell you, wherever you go after the Wesley Foundation one day, or this next Sunday, you have a responsibility to be one voice, and you may be the only one, but you have a responsibility to be a person in your church that expects that of your preacher, and that is willing to get in her or his corner to say so. I don't know if I want to say anything else about preaching. Um, except that we're all called to do it. Anyway, moving on. So, whoa. Um, I think one thing that practicing woe means, or that, that like reflecting on the cries of woe in this, in this passage can mean for us practically, is to recognize um, that there's room in what we say for pronouncing judgment. I don't mean that there's room for judging other people in a way where we stand up over them, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But guys, you can't talk like the Bible talks and there not be a lot of room for pronouncing judgment in your speech. It is bizarre that it is scandalous for a preacher to be able to stand up in any tradition in this country and say, obviously don't vote for Donald Trump. But what's evident in the inability to say that is that we've lost the power of pronouncement of judgment. We are afraid to say, this is a path that leads to death. Period. It just is. We might say that about certain kinds of things. Maybe. But if we cannot say, this is not allowed. This is death. Full stop. Then part of what we're losing is the ability to say, whoa! In a way that portends the destruction that is going to come from the sinful choices and behaviors of ourselves and of the world. When I say to my son, regardless of what the Lord of the Flies kids in your class chant about Donald Trump, one day he's going to answer to God. What Elias says in response to that is, what does that mean? And I don't necessarily know how to answer that question. But I know that it matters and that it does however lightly, put something in the scale over against those chants. It matters to be able to say that what happens today when all the Electoral College crap starts to come in is not the last word. That matters. The fact that every one of us is going to face the living God. So the pronouncement of judgment is something that we should cherish Likewise, the destruction, thinking here to that stuff about the latter half of chapter 11, the destruction in the judgment we read about in Revelation is ordered toward restoration. And in that sense, when we pronounce woe, we're not only grieving, but we are actually in our grief and even in our judgment, we are exercising hope 
we are recognizing that there is something beyond the destructive decay of our own time whenever we give voice to the things that need to be grieved right now. I mean, guys, it, is, it needs to be grieved that, that the church is the reason that Donald Trump is the president. That is sad, if nothing else. Like, it's infuriating, yes, but guys, it's just, and the absence of grief over this is just appalling. It's sad. And I'm saying that not because I'm a Democrat, because I'm not, and that's why I don't vote. It's so that you know that I'm saying that because of the Lord and the life he's called us to live, which is utterly opposed to everything that Donald Trump and the people who are pulling the party line behind him stand for. And just to be clear, I'm not saying the Democrats are waving the flag of the gospel. That's another reason I don't vote. But it's egregiously not the case on the right that that in any way can be commensurate with what God has called us to. And so we need grief. Not just because there's something to be mourned, but because in our mourning and in the recognition of destruction that is leading toward a final kind of destruction, we look forward and we see in the raising of earthly kingdoms the arrival of that kingdom that we pray will come on earth as it is in heaven. In our woe, we look forward to the time when we can say that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And yet I do want to end on the, on the agony in that word well. That creation is so damaged as to need destroying and rebuilding is grievous. And the destruction even of a damaged thing, even though it may be ordered toward redemption, is grievous and painful to endure. These days, the inhabitants of earth and the citizens of the United States of America are aching for a church that's capable of hearing the eagle's cries of well, and that's willing to engage not in alarm, not in vitriol, but in grief that gives expression to the Lord's own pain and his compassion. Amen.